I'm not on the telephone. You? Are I don't you know telemarketing what now? <laughs> I'm not sure. But anyways, we are speaking to you from beautiful Charlottetown, PEI, at the Nina Conference. And unfortunately, I have not been able to convince Landon to try oysters again. Maybe no. lobster tonight. I don't know. Okay, we'll see. But he kind of likes the local beer. I do like the local beer, blueberry beer. Beer, I don't know. yeah. From so it's a blueberry wheat beer. Oh, it, I he seems to like it. I wasn't going to get that cultured because Monique doesn't like beer. <laughs> I don't. I'm a wine drinker. Anyways, we are going to talk to you. Well, actually, it was one of our talks at the conference. It's called Battle of the Sexes. And it was, and we thought it's already done. So why don't we? And talk people to you liked about it. it. Yes. So let's do a podcast. Exactly. So here we are. From our little hotel, well, not our little hotel room. No, my no, no. Little, I was gonna say my little hotel room, and you're down the hall. And in fact, we've been in this exact hotel before. Before, yeah. randomly, when we came here after a conference many years ago, same hotel. And parked ourselves at this hotel, and yeah. here we are again. It is. It's beautiful. So if you haven't had an opportunity to come to PEI, please come and see our lovely East Coast here. And. For those of you who don't know what PEI is, because you're saying it like a fast PEI, PEI. Prince Edward uh, it's Island. Prince Edward Island, which is a province in Canada. Exactly. And it is our smallest province. It, it is. is just an island. <laughs> so what we're going to talk about is what is which diseases affect men and women differently, why that difference might be the case, and how to structure prevention and treatment in response to these differences. The United Nations and the World Health Organization in 2010 acknowledged that sex and gender are increasingly recognized as important determinants of health for women and men. Beyond the biological differences, we have gender roles, norms, and behavior, and that influences how women, men, girls, and boys access health services and how health services meet those needs. There has been a real focus on women's health and what what is called the excess disease burden. And researchers and scientists state that there's, that this is justified to fill gaps in knowledge regarding women's health. Part of that is due to the fact that have been male biases and male norms in clinical studies, and we can certainly see that in the cardiac study, in the Framingham study. In the past, we have focused our attention on developing countries where that burden on females was far greater, particularly around maternal conditions. And so the approach was really developed around preventing pregnancy by providing effective family planning methods, prevention of complications, for example, hemorrhage, and the prevention of death or disability resulting from complications through emergency obstetrical care. We're also more than aware of the importance of prevention related to screening and early detection of cervical cancers, breast cancers, etc. But certainly in developing countries, both the availability of the technology and the women's lack of understanding of the importance of this type of screening has led to really quite a spotty implementation. And even though the international women's health movement has promoted significant advances in the quality of care for reproductive health and maternal conditions in the past 25 years, the main challenges in relation to conditions specific to women include reaching poor and socially excluded women with basic maternal, with, I'm sorry, with basic maternal and reproductive health services, strengthening the adoption of preventive health behaviors in developing countries, and extending the quality of care to other conditions specific to women, including neoplasms and educating and empowering women to promote their own healthy behaviors. 
Yeah, you say that, but there was a bulletin from the World Health Organization in 2014. So it's a little more current than mine. Is that what you're trying to apply? Okay. Let's use current research, Monique. 2010 (laughs) is so Vancouver Olympics. Uh, Okay, then. It stated that in most parts of the world, health outcomes among boys and men could be substantially worse than among girls and women. Yet this gender-based disparity in health has received little national, regional, or global acknowledgement or attention from health policymakers or healthcare providers. So you're just kind of complaining that you're not getting the attention that you think you we deserve. We are a needy gender. Yes, I figured that. That men tend to be worse in worse health than women has now been made clear by robust evidence from various sources. The Global Burden of Disease Study, led by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, oh, look, in, 2010. in 2010, showed that throughout the period from 1970 to 2010, women had a longer life expectancy than men. Over that 40-year period as well, female life expectancy at birth went from 61 to 73 years, whereas male life expectancy rose from 56 to 67 years. Yeah, but, you know, the thing about it is that just because women are living longer, that doesn't mean that they are living longer healthier. The main group of diseases for women associated with that greater longevity are increases in Alzheimer's disease, muscular skeletal disorders such as osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoporosis, and heart disease. So it's I'm, interesting. We're, we're really, what we're saying is, is it quality versus quantity? Quantity, exactly. My bones are breaking as we're sitting here. Well, that's because you're in that 61 to oh, 73 year not. age range. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Well, the way you talk about your bones... <laughs> Now, you know what, though, in London, in many of the societies, men actually enjoy more opportunity, privileges, and power than women. But that is not actually translating into better health outcomes. According to the World Health Organization European Region's Review of Social Determinants of Health, men's poorer survival rates reflected several factors. Greater levels of occupational exposure to physical and chemical hazards, and the testosterone factor. Testosterone factor. Which is the male norm of risk taking. Oh, and yes, adventure. that testosterone factor. Also, they found that men are less likely to visit a doctor when they are ill, and when they do see a doctor, and this is important for those of you interviewing patients, they're less likely to report the actual symptoms of their disease or illness. And I oh. think we've all experienced that. Well, you know what? I think that when they talk about men are less likely to visit a doctor, it is because if you look at the statistics, women do tend to see a physician more often, but more during their reproductive years because we're having the babies. And frankly, men are less likely to report on their symptoms of disease or illness because they're not very good with using their words. Use your words, Use your words. Listen, I think we can both agree that healthcare is hard and that any serious effort to improve public health must include attention to the health needs of both sexes and responsiveness to the differences between them. Healthcare is hard? Mm-hmm. Who knew? I think we should move on and perhaps look at some cases that illustrate the differences in the approach or the disease presentation between men and women. Let me give you some cases. A perimenopausal woman of 48 is sent into her ED by her GP Complaining of feeling short of breath, extremely tired, had a lack of energy, and having difficulty sleeping for the last couple of months. Initially, her GP, and may I add, he was a man, had felt it was just perimenopausal symptoms and told her that this too shall pass. 
Eventually, blood work was done, and it did show some hormonal changes, indicating that the patient was perimenopausal. However, an ECG showed ST depression, and so the GP sent her into the ED. Well, at least he did that. Well, I guess he did. She's a non-smoker, active runner, has been on high blood pressure pills for at least 10 years, and has high cholesterol. She looks really well, quite muscular. Her blood pressure, though, is a little high at 65 on 100, pulse of 98, respirations are 15, and her temp is 36.5. So that would be a blood pressure a little high of 165 on 100. What did I say? 65 on 100. Oh, dear, that would be wrong. 165 over 100. So the patient was eventually referred to the cardiologist, and she was diagnosed with coronary muscular microvascular disease. Did I say musculovascular? I know it. So let's talk about coronary microvascular disease, which sometimes is called small artery disease or small vessel disease, and it is a heart disease that affects the walls and inner lining of tiny coronary coronary artery blood vessels that branch off from the larger coronary arteries. We all know that coronary artery disease involves plaque formation that can block blood flow. And in coronary microvascular disease, the heart's tiny coronary artery blood vessels do not have plaque. What happens is they have damage to the inner walls of the blood vessels, and that can lead to spasm and decrease blood flow to the heart muscle. You may have also heard it called cardiac syndrome X, or non-obstructive coronary heart disease. Women more frequently develop coronary microvascular disease, and it actually occurs particularly in younger women. However, men and women who do have this often have a history of diabetes, high blood pressure, or a family history of cardiomyopathy. So on top of the usual risk factors for atherosclerotic disease, women, which are also the same as uh, coronary microvascular disease, women may be at a risk or higher risk for coronary, can we just say MVD, microvascular disease, if they have lower than normal estrogen levels at any point in their adult life. So low estrogen levels before menopause can raise younger women's risk for coronary MVD and can be caused by stress and also a functioning problem with their ovaries, so something like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Women who have high blood pressure before menopause, especially high systolic blood pressure, are also at risk. And after menopause, women tend to have more of the traditional risk factors uh, for atherosclerotic disease, which also puts them at higher risk for coronary MVD. Now, just interestingly, women who are perimenopausal often have menorrhagia, or not often, but they may, and thus they can be anemic. And those women who have an MI, who also have anemia, have a poorer outcome because anemia is thought to slow the growth of cells needed to repair blood vessels. The problem with uh, coronary MVD is diagnosing it. And your traditional cardiac tests, even coronary angiography, which is kind of considered the gold standard diagnostic tool in identifying heart attacks, usually miss MVD entirely. In fact, about 40% of patients suffering with the severe chest pain have had normal angiograms. Presently, the best diagnostic test for detecting it may be something called... is called coronary reactive testing. It's kind of like an angiogram where the heart is challenged with different medications like adenosine, acetylcholine, and nitroglycerin to see how the heart reacts, and that actually determines the amount of endothelial damage. Now, some of the symptom differences that women notice are about MVD is that women notice these symptoms during their routine daily activities and times of mental stress but less often during physical activity or exertion. So like my 
lady who was a runner and everything like that. This differs from heart disease in which symptoms often first appear when a patient is being physically active. If you are particularly interested, you can check out the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's Y study, which is Women's Ischemic Syndrome Evaluation, and there is ongoing research to learn about more about the role of hormones in heart disease and to find better ways to diagnose coronary MBD. Now, I guess I'm going to have to let you have a case or two here. That was long. It was, but it was interesting. Enough about girls. <laughs> Let's talk about boys. So this is a guy, 29-year-old guy. He was walking down the street, uh-huh. obviously minding his own business. Which they are always doing. And suddenly out of nowhere, a wall came out mm-hmm. and hit his wrist. Yeah, that's very concerning, isn't it? Runaway it is. walls. Yeah. That wall that comes and hits your fist is just... I, I hate I when that happens. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> All right. So maybe he put his fist into the wall. He's normally healthy. His vital signs are normal. He smokes occasional marijuana. So he has a, a displaced fracture of mm-hmm. his fourth or fifth metacarpal, which is called a boxer's, boxer's fracture. fracture. Yeah. So... This happens when you punch a hard object. It occurs about 20% of patients that occur a hard object. That occur a hard object? That occur a hard object. I'm not sure what that meant. Are you correcting my words for once? I was. I'm using my words. You should be happy. (laughs) Well, they were the wrong words, though. So it is a fracture of the fourth or fifth metacarpal neck with volar displacement of the metacarpal head. So there you go. You can Google... image of a boxer's fracture x-ray if you don't know what i'm talking about yeah but interesting you know the the boys although we use our words they're not always the words we should use Mm -hmm. and and was probably what got him in this state to start with but we need to know what he punched and if it was another person and that contacted some teeth that may require blood and body fluid exposure follow-up uh if it was if if it was a a wall that has yuckies on it may need a tetanus shot i guess maybe Um, it's a a a person whose name was wall do you think that might be it oh that could be that might be it Hmm? anyway this is a boy's injury yes it is very much a boy's injury because girls don't punch walls I was going to say they weren't strong enough to punch walls. Oh, but, dear. Dear, oh, dear, no. dear. Girls don't punch walls because they use their they words they instead. Do. Exactly. There might be hair pulling, but there's no wall. Punching. Well, I did mention the testosterone factor earlier, and there have been studies that look at how much more likely men are to die than women as a result of risk-taking behaviors. And not surprisingly, many of these risk-taking behaviors are related to... Alcohol, do you think? Alcohol. Now... Mm. In 2010, 3.14 million men, as opposed to 1.72 million women, died from causes linked to excessive alcohol use. Wow. For many men, excessive alcohol consumption is is linked to notions of masculinity. I don't understand that. That just doesn't make any sense to me. For example, a study of men in the Russian Federation. The Russian Federation. Well, it just seems like this is something Putin would want to know about. It just seems very manly. (laughs) showed that heavy drinking of strong spirits, and I quote, elevates or maintains a man's status in working class social groups by facilitating access to power associated with the hegemonic ideal of the real working man. Wow. Hmm. Of 67 risk factors and risk factor clusters. Woo! That That was was close. close. (laughs) 
I think Cluck came out more uh, than... Uh, I hope so. Of 67 risk factors and risk factor clusters identified in the Global Burden of Disease Study led by that Institute of Health Metrics Evaluation, blah, 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 in 2010. 60 were responsible for more male than female deaths, and the top 10 risk factors were all more common in men. Hmm. So men drink... And they take more risks. They put the beer down and say, hey, watch this. Exactly. Always. But did we really not know that already? I think we all knew that. So let's get back to... All right. More about girls. Yes. We're far more interesting. 39-year-old female presents to the ED with blurred vision, pain when she's moving her eyes. She has also noticed that she's been having muscle spasms in her right leg, but kind of felt that it was because she was training for a marathon. She's previously healthy, no past medical problems, no meds or allergies, and her vital signs are normal. She's eventually referred to a neurologist, and her MRI showed that she had MS. So for some of us, they've listened to our MS podcast. Right, right? and so if you are surprised that women have more MS and don't know anything about MS... Listen to our podcast. We have an MS podcast. Exactly. So listen to that. Exactly. But I'm going to just very briefly tell you that MS is what has been branded a Canada's disease. And Canadian women are more than twice as likely to get MS than men. It is interesting that there it used to be about two to one, two women to every one man. But we have now exceeded 3.2 cases of women for every one case among men. And because of that rising incidence among women, kind of around the 1960s, many have speculated that it's because it's related to higher levels of hormone estrogen when we got the introduction of the birth control pill. Of course, that isn't the only factor that's related to MS. And um, as we talked about in our podcast, it feels like Canada has a perfect storm, genetics, environment, lack of sun, so vitamin D, smoking viruses. And we certainly, which I find quite interesting, see the same increased numbers for those of us coming or immigrating to Canada. We still want you, but I'm just warning you. <laughs> just warning you. Come just warning here. you. you yeah, it's you might a bit get MS. sad. I know, it's a bit sad, isn't it, really? I guess it's better than what you might get in some other countries. That's true. Now, I'm going to have trouble saying this, but I'm going to... Oh, you, why don't you talk about this? Because well, you, you are a little bit of a nerd, and I think that that's probably... We haven't talked about this before. Well, we we, refer, we referenced it in our podcast, which yeah. was probably a year and a bit ago. A bit ago, yeah. Um, that there had been some interesting treatments developed. So there actually, in January 2017, the, the article was published about ocrelizumab. Yeah, in the New York, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine. And that was very good. You've been practicing that. I'm looking at you, waiting for you to try. No, I'm not saying it. Ocrelizumab. Ocrelizumab. No, that's no, not good. No, I didn't think so. Okay. So what they found is that the progression of MS has been slowed by about 40% and that relapses have been reduced by 50%. MRI scans also show that this drug has stopped the formations of new lesions in the brain. This drug has been tested on thousands of patients. Uh, right now, it is before Health Canada for regulatory approval. And, and what it is, is it's an immunosuppression type of model yeah. in that uh, it targets the B cells, which are CD20 positive B cells. Yeah. I don't know. That's just what it says. Okay. That are type of immune cell that are thought to contribute to myelin um, and axonal damage. Yeah. Which results in the disability we call MS. Mm-hmm. So B cells are part of the immune system uh, because, and they are called B cells because they develop in the B bone marrow. That was very bone marrow. B <laughs> T cells, on the other hand, are developed in the t- hymus gland. 
so thymus gland, and they think that myelin damage is from the activation of T cells, that is from these B cells, and that back and forth thing. and partying and yes. fighting and whatever yeah. myelin destruction. So it is a pretty exciting breakthrough. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I actually just saw a patient last couple of weeks ago, and it was the patient's fa- husband actually who had just finished this. And I think as Landon has mentioned, this whole thing about the immune system. Don't forget these patients are immunocompromised, so it's going to be something that you need to think about, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and some Canadian neurologists involved in that yes, research. So I know. It's kind of exciting for us. Uh, all right. Let's go back to boys. Oh, uh, always back to boys. Always back to boys. Yes. A 47-year-old guy is brought into the emergency department by his wife with whom he's been separated for about a year. And she's concerned about him because he's been more isolated and the children have said that he's drinking a lot of alcohol. On presentation, you look at him, he's unshaven, a little unkempt, he smells of alcohol, his eyes are watery and he looks sad, and he lost his job two years ago and has been unable to find work. He admits he's having a rough time, but denies feeling suicidal and depressed. In a recent article in Psychology Today, numerous researchers stated that there's a silent crisis in men's health, uh, sorry, men's mental health, These include elevated rates of suicide and substance abuse, as well as low rates of mental health service use. Specifically in Canada, the suicide rate for men is three times greater than women. They often choose more lethal methods. One factor is the massive decline in traditional male industries, such as manufacturing, forestry, and fisheries, which has left large groups of men in certain regions unemployed or underemployed. Mm In the current economy, many men are finding it difficult to fulfill their breadwinner role, leaving them without a powerful sense of pride, purpose, and meaning in life, which is, uh, unfortunately, you know, it's easy to go, well, they should just get over that, but that's that's millions of years of genetics, and it's it's hard to get over that. It's hard to change that, sorry, within one generation. Very high rates have been observed in our Canadian First Nations men and gay men, and a common factor among these groups may be perceived or real rejection from mainstream society leading to strong feelings of alienation and isolation. Substance use is also predominantly a male problem, occurring at a rate of 3 to 1 in comparison to females. And substance abuse is referred to as slow-motion suicide, given that it ends in premature death for the person concerned. It's just not as instant. Research indicates that many men engage in substance abuse in response to stressful life transitions around unemployment, divorce, and with 50% of marriages ending in divorce... And many men actually having negative experiences in family court, uh, with one in six only receiving custody of their children, and often with minimal to no visitation rights. Again, this is seen more in more certain subgroups, um, First Nations and veterans being two that are highlighted in our country, which implies the need for more targeted interventions to some of these groups. The, the other side of this is that men are significantly less likely to access traditional mental health services in response to mental health issues in comparison with women. This is especially true for black, Latino, and Asian men who have much lower utilization rates than white men, as well as women in general. So in other words, men who are suicidal or have substance abuse problems are more likely to suffer in silence, not seek help, and actually mm. follow through, yeah. especially if they're a minority. Yeah. So men are stubborn. Yes. They're rooted in traditional notions of masculinity, which doesn't really say, let's go sit on a couch and talk about my problems. And so there is some research suggesting that men prefer action over words um, with stress and with some of these things. And so I know with uh, some of the PTSD counseling and things going on right now, they're they're trying to target certain um, 
occupations or uh, men with uh, some activity with activity with counseling so let's go for a hike while we do this let's play basketball mm-hmm. and talk and yeah. whereas with females it's more of a let's go out for tea and talk and and yeah. so kind of not one intervention is good for both genders necessarily kind of interesting sorry when you both look sexes at it. I, I was going to say I need both. to get my right, right terminology yeah. going on here it uh, is sexist. talking about well it is interesting because I think that on both sides we do need to think about what's best for that person based on their not just cultural norms but also their sex makes a difference in how we deal with it right now let me quickly talk about a 68 year well don't have to talk quickly quickly but quickly know, talk I'm about the girl sure quickly so yes, we can exactly. talk about boys, boys again. again so a 68 year old woman is brought to the ed by her 40 year old daughter her daughter was kind of concerned her mom's neighbor had called there were fire trucks at the house her mother and for, had mistaken the microwave as the clothes dryer and had set her sweater on fire The daughter says that she has noticed that her mother had been a little bit more forgetful, but she had thought it was just aging. Her mom had high blood pressure only and has been suffering for quite some time. She eventually sees a gerontologist, and she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Now, women make up 72% of Alzheimer's patients in Canada, and nearly the same percentage give up years of their lives as family caregivers. It's the most common type of dementia. It affects about 747,000 Canadians, and age is a significant risk factor for dementia. And because women live longer than men, there are more of them suffering from Alzheimer's, which includes memory loss, impaired judgment, and personality and behavioral changes. Now, over the last 30 years, really, I kind of say that the brain is the last frontier because it's difficult to understand how each of our brains work. And researchers have made remarkable progress in understanding healthy brain function, and that was probably necessary before we understand what errors or what goes wrong in Alzheimer's disease or when brains don't function the way they're supposed to do. And beta amyloid seems to be um, the thing that they're focusing on because it is the chief component of plaques, which is one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's brain abnormalities. What they're noticing is how this protein is being formed, which is present in abnormally high levels in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. Therefore, what they're doing is developing medications aimed at almost every point in the amyloid processing system that goes on that creates this plaque. So these medications are attempting to prevent these fragments from clumping into plaques and even using antibodies against it to clear it from the brain. So the problem is that current drugs... Um, are all in the research phase and it is not in clinical trials yet and it may be quite some time to do that what did I say he's looking I wish you sometimes could see his face when he's looking at me because I've said something wrong Monique yes use your words what did I say you skipped every big word in that whole paragraph that we wrote I know but I don't want to say all of them she did not want to say that it's an amyloid precursor protein with two enzymes beta secretase and gamma secretase that form the beta amyloid I'm sure nobody was interested in writing all of that down and current drug research is solazenumab I said it wrong solanezumab (laughs) They're I'm not saying. Zoomabs. I, I know, wonder if I they do the understand. same thing. The Zoomabs. <laughs> it's a new category of drugs. Yeah, it's like the, the Zoomabs. Uh, it's like the Apams, the Benzos. These are the Zoomabs. Zoomabs, and uh, very soon people will be calling their children Zoomabs or something, or pets or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyways, let's go back to the boys. Boys. All right. A 42-year-old guy is brought in by his mother. Uh huh. 
brought in by his mother at 42. Already red flags are going off in my head. As a boy, I reserve comment. Yes, I bet you do. Complaining of a two-day history of general malaise, fever, and myalgia. He has no history of travel. Several of his colleagues have been sick. He works predominantly with women. Mm-hmm. And they've been getting, they've been, you know, they're back already. And yeah. he doesn't feel good. Yeah. He's got no rash, previously healthy, but his symptoms are far worse than his colleagues. And he's not getting better. Monique, this is a real problem. I can see that you're very concerned about him. This is a public health emergency. It seems to be in your mind. Called man, man flu. flu. Yeah. He's got the man flu. Well, a 2016 study. You're feeling quite vindicated to talk about this. I am feeling vindicated. I know you are. Published in the Journal of Brain Behavior and Immunity, another exciting read, Mm -hmm. outlined their research conducted on lab mice at the University of Ottawa's Neuroimmunology, Stress, and Endocrinology Lab. Yay, Canadian research on man flu. Which suggested that infections may be more severe in men than in women. The scientists injected male and female mice with bacteria that triggered an immune response similar to what the body experiences with a flu infection. I'm sorry, we're in the hotel and some weird noise. Well, the housekeepers are starting to vacuum the hallway. It sounded like an airplane was landing on us. So if you're wondering what the background accompaniment of man flu is she's probably quite disgusted about man flu herself she's trying to drown him out drown me out it's a conspiracy (laughs) i think it might be but go ahead so So, they injected these poor mice with bacteria well actually viruses probably okay and anyway they i think it was bacteria wasn't it yeah i don't know the symptoms were a lot more intense in males than they were in females mice right let's just be clear the men mice suffered greater drops in body temperatures like the chills that accompany the flu and had more signs of inflammation in their bloodstream they in fact these men mice looked more miserable droopy eyed shivering all huddled together i i just i don't understand why they would even comment on this in the lab of these mice looking can't you miserable. picture these men <laughs> without laughing? How do you see droopy-eyed, shivering mice that huddle together? The poor mice. Oh, it stop. would be so sad. I'm sure. The women mice were over having tea, thinking <laughs> yeah, they're whatever. all great. <laughs> so the researchers suggested, although we're making fun of this, this is scientific. Yeah. The research suggested it's because testosterone and estrogen affect the immune system differently, which probably can be translated into humans, yeah. whether the man flu thing carries on or not estrogen does rev up the immune system so women typically feel worse initially as that revs up but they recover faster testosterone however is a suppression of the immune system and so men tend to stay sick longer now in the study the males mice Mice. took an average of 48 hours to recover whereas the female mice mice took 24 hours now Obviously, a study on mice doesn't prove that the same reactions occur in humans, but it does suggest that hormones and other factors may cause gender differences in how the body responds to illness. Okay, I will concede with that. Perfect. Now, the interesting fact with this study, and if you did see, this was on our national news in Canada, if you did see the study, the lady who presented this research was fantastic. They um, did this study, and they actually threw their initial data away because this was not the intention of their study. Mm-hmm. And they 
said, well, something must have gone wrong. There's no such thing as this man flu. They threw their study away and they redid it and then had to actually concede that they were getting valid results. And all of them were women. That's shock. But you, yeah, I know it is a bit shocking, but research. And watching her presented on the news is great because she acknowledges that. It is man flu. That they and did I, throw the results away I think and she was a bit study. embarrassed that she had to actually admit that there was a man flu. I think she was embarrassed for us as men. Uh, yes, probably. Because even though our immune system may get sicker, mm-hmm. honestly, yes, we don't need to be pathetic about it. That is true. But it is interesting because, you know, when you talk about research and repeating it, that's really validated, right? You do a research, you get some studies, but when you repeat the same research and you get the same study, that does get, it does validate things. It does. I and know. The, I'm being I, too kind to the men right now, but And the poor go. little mice. I know. All huddled, Shivering and all huddled, huddled together. Looking miserable. And Don't droopy-eyed. forget. Droopy-eyed. Droopy-eyed. Well, anyways, we have been having a little bit of fun with this, but we do recognize that there are of course, specific diseases that are male and female. So for men like testicular cancer or prostate issues and females with ovarian issues, Bartholin cysts, that that sort of thing. But it is important to ensure that we consider gender and sex when we look at research and clinical trials. And as it, as it is clear from, I hope from our podcast, that men and women's symptoms and their responses are different and our biology affects some of our predisposition to some diseases. So it has been fun battling with Landon, and we hope to see you again, or to see you. We hope that if you ever see us, come say hi, but uh, we will be talking to you again next month. Thank you. All right. Goodbye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.